Hello and welcome to Reality Check, the podcast that gives you the truth about the state of marketing. On Reality Check, we interview people who are at the top of their game and the highest levels of the marketing industry. No theory here, just reality. This is the podcast for agency owners. We only talk to the most senior of marketing directors or those at the top of the agency game. Our aim is to bring you heaps of value in just 30 minutes. I'm Oliver Duffy Lee, and I'll be your host. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Reality Check. Thanks very much for joining us. Today's episode is with ex-marketing director of Royal Mail, Ben Rhodes. Ben is a man with so much experience. We probably could have done a four-hour episode this time. Having started agency side for 10 years, Ben then led the marketing efforts for MasterCard before heading to Royal Mail. In the episode, we discuss Ben's career as well as the state of digital advertising and the role of the agency in supporting big organizations. Oh yeah, and Ben also gives some amazing advice on how to win a pitch, so stay tuned for that. For now, kick back and enjoy the show. Okay, Ben, great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for joining us. As a way of getting started, can you just introduce yourself, please? I'm Ben, and I'm formerly the Group Marketing Director at at Royal Mail. I spent 10 years at Royal Mail, three years as Group Marketing Director. Prior to that, um, I did a big stint at MasterCard, where I was Vice President for Marketing in the UK uh, and Ireland. And before that, I did about a decade working in ad agencies, kind of really getting my craft skills up, uh, learning how to persuade and how to communicate. Wow. That's a a very impressive career. I'm really excited that you've done both agency side and brand side, because that's the sort of insight that this podcast is literally all about. So that's awesome. So let me ask you quickly about your time in Royal Mail then. So what were your key goals? What were you trying to achieve in your marketing mainly? Yeah, so I mean, I held five different positions actually over the 10 years that I was at Royal Mail. Always at the helm of marketing, but in slightly different orientation, let me put it that way, mm-hmm. uh, depending on where, where the business was. So when I first joined, it was all about re-establishing the brand, refreshing the identity, and trying to really commercialize the marketing activity. They just come out of a whole load of industrial action back in 2010, mm-hmm. and they needed a, a, a new kind of proposition to go back to the market, try and rebuild some trust. So um, so I did an awful lot of work around that. Then we deregulated and we approached the IPO. Uh, and then the role of marketing was was really much more around the kind of commercial smarts within the team and with the capabilities within within Royal Mail across all the different sectors that it operated in. I then went on a, a secondment and, and launched a media brand called Market Reach, which represents direct mail. So it's a billion pound business. So I, I partnered with with the MD Jonathan Harmon to to relaunch that. It it, it, it had launched, but really badly. So we, we went in and kind of completely rebuilt the case for mail, and and, and I did a huge amount of very very kind of gritty B two B work. You know, kind of really kind of tooling up the sales force, getting them trained up so they knew how to sell mail in a digital environment yeah. uh, to marketeers, building the case for mail, what the proposition is, how does where does mail fit in a in a digital world. Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And that, that was fascinating. I jumped out of that. And then we were writing the kind of IPO year and you know, fully deregulated business. And I started to do quite a lot of strategic marketing around unlocking value uh, from, okay. from our customer base. Roma has just shy of 300,000 contract account customers. They can only 
sell to about 50,000 a year. So there's a big role in marketing there. Um, So I did a big segmentation piece, a value segmentation piece, which really turned parts of the business on its head in terms of our understanding of customers and customer value. Uh, But off the back of that, I uh, implemented a big CRM program. And then I started to digitize marketing really quite aggressively to kind of build up a very strong lead stream into the business of new business uh, opportunities through digital channels alongside the, as you would imagine, the direct mail. Of we, course. Did quite, we did quite a lot of because it was free. Um, of course. So, yeah, so I did a lot of that. And then in my last, my, my, in, in my last stint, when I took on group marketing, I had to merge the digital function, which is standalone as it is in quite a lot of large businesses, into the marketing function as part of a restructure. I had to release a lot of costs by, by, by doing that. That was, that was the mission. Uh, and it was a fascinating thing for me to do. I'd always, you know, I'd done digital bits as part of marketing, but actually to run digital and oversee very big elements of digital transformation, certainly around our website and about 30 applications on the website, quite a large capital project to kind of push through the organization with our shop and with GDPR coming online at the same time. Yeah. That was that was quite a major focus in the last three years, as well as, you know, establishing a social media presence uh, and capability and a huge amount of kind of corporate and more recently crisis communications around kind of you know, COVID and lockdown. Of course. Um, so yeah, busy times. Wow, that's, a, that's a, a massive, a massive amount of activity. So just give us, it sounds to me like you, you at the start of that, your tenure there, it was more traditional and a lot more thinking and positioning. And then towards the end, it was more digital and implementation. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And, 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 but I also think that's partly because, you know, you know, 10% of the world is strategy, right? 90% is implementation. So, so, so once, once you get that, the, those kind of strategic pillars sorted out, yeah. um, sure, you have to refresh them from time to time. But once you get that, that basically sorted out, then it really is about kind of implementation and much more kind of tactical activities, delivering those plans. And digitization was a massive, massive part of that. Of course. You know, I mean, when I joined Raw Mail in 2010, they spent more on yellow pages advertising than they did on Google. Wow. So, <laughs> so, you know, so there was quite a long way to go. And, yeah. and from a capability perspective, you know, the average tenure at Raw Mail is 26 years. So I got out luckier after 10. You know, so, so what tends to happen in an environment like that is you get, you get a very, very strong product knowledge and market knowledge, but you don't necessarily get the experience to the outside world and what's happening mm-hmm. and the different behaviors and changes that are happening there. So, so that's, that, yeah, so it was really important to, 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 for somebody like me, but not just me on my own, I hasten to add, but to really kind of champion yeah, um, yeah. You know, kind of digital and digitization. Not as the answer to everything. It's not a panacea. You don't just switch from, you know, offline to fully online. It's it's kind of and as opposed yeah. to and you know, that was that was a, that was a hell of a journey. It took a long time. And so and, and in your experience then, because you've taken some ser- some senior positions in different organizations, how often is it the case that when you take a new position, the first part of that is new strategy, new vision, new direction? Or have there been times when you've taken a position and actually it's just continuation? Actually, in both cases, there was always a big task to do. So when I joined, when I joined Mastercard, they just bought the Switch franchise. For those people old enough to know that that Switch was a payment, a debit payment brand that sat alongside Visa, 
and they wanted to rebrand that to, to Maestro, which was a European type of brand. That doesn't exist in the UK anymore. I'm revealing my age. That was quite a big task to come in and kind of, you know, to kind of you know, do that brand migration. That's that's why I was brought in to kind of do that. And that yeah. involved, as you would imagine, classic kind of positioning work, yeah. you know, brand development, big creative campaigns that we need to run to kind of raise awareness of that. Uh, and then customer marketing through the banks. Same at Royal Mail. There was, you know, the, when I came in, it was really all around refreshing the brand. We, we know we need to do something different. We need to get somebody in to kind of help us do that. And so, and actually, we're sort of drifting onto that already. But so, have, in your time, either at Royal Mail or at MasterCard, what, what key challenges have you always faced as a senior marketing director? Uh, I mean, yeah, and they're two very different organizations. So, MasterCard, kind of high growth, technology driven, very high margin business. Yeah. It's a processing technology payment business. Uh, raw mail, incredibly low margin, hugely bureaucratic, and you know part of the business in massive decline. The other part of the business needing a lot of radical transformation. You know, the e-commerce part of it to kind of really kind of grow. So they're very very different organisations, but actually the challenges were the same. To be honest with you, yeah. so there's always challenges around creating greater effectiveness and making the case for that and okay. securing funding. There's always challenges around kind of efficiency. I mean, you know, in a low margin business like Royal Mail, efficiency is, you know, uh, a constant driver uh, of decision making, which, to be honest with you, makes it very hard to be creative, makes it very hard to be risk averse, makes it it very hard actually to create platforms where you can get above market growth because you've got this constant drive or can you cut costs? Can you do this cheaper? Can you be more efficient? So that's that's quite a challenge. And, And I think... You know the, the other the other piece, and you get this in large organisations a lot. I think maybe a lot of people in the podcast have experienced this themselves. Is you get a lot of restructuring. So, and, and what restructuring does, you know, which is a euphemism for exiting people from the business and getting getting the existing people to work harder and increase productivity. Uh-huh. You know, there's a human face to productivity gains, right? Which is, uh, you know, the same person doing twice as much work over a period of time. The challenge with that is always the massive loss of productivity you have when you go through a restructure. Yeah. No one knows if they got a job or not. But then what, from a talent retention and development perspective, it gets really hard as well because you know, it's very difficult to retain good talent and it's quite difficult to pull new talent in and, you know, and offer the kind of training and development that you need to have when you know, the, the marketing world is you know, going through huge, huge changes with the kind of way that MarTech's operating, the way the digital ecosystem operates for yeah. appetite. So, so kind of being on top of all of those developments sure. is really hard, especially when you've got the CFO and the CEO looking at each other saying, and spend that money very wisely. Yeah, Don't presumably wanting, wanting measurement on every, every piece of activity you do, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, an early stage in Royal Mail, I, I, I sat down with, with, with Moira and Matthew, who are the, the, the CEO and CFO, respectively. Well, I, said, I sat down, they pulled me into their office, and we thrashed out a set of KPIs for marketing activity. Okay. Can you um, share what and, the KPIs were? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, it was largely, well, there were, there were, there were a bag of them. So I set hurdle rates for um, return on investment. Okay. Um, both at the low end and also the high end, because it's yeah. quite easy to get a high ROI. You just, you just target people who are going to buy. Uh, anyway, so I caught on to that one quite quickly. You know, people go, I've got an 18 to 1 ROI. You go, well, say what? Stop the activity. Guess what? We'll still sell the fucking product. So we set hurdle rates on that. And then also we then, you know, for our B2B businesses, we absolutely looked at the kind of the key KPIs around kind of, you know, leads, average order value, conversion rate. I mean, this is kind of bread and butter stuff. Yeah. And I, but you know, the KPIs, guys were always commercial 
Now, if that meant that I needed to get a certain amount of awareness or a certain amount of impressions I needed to hit, that was fine. But they, mm-hmm. they weren't the KPIs. So the KPIs were the pounds of traded revenue that we made at the end of the day. And as long as I could justify my investment and prove out that you know, the activity was delivering this, they were less interested, much less interested in, you know, is this a direct response approach? Is this a brand-led right. approach? They were just interested in the bottom line, which I think, you know, is a great conversation to have. It's a great leveler. It's much easier yeah. to talk to a CFO about, you know, pounds yeah. and, you know, contribution and margin than it is around awareness and salience and impression. But, what is, so what's, but what's your view on that? From a marketing perspective, aren't those other sort of softer, non-commercial KPIs also important? They are important, but they're not, they're not key performance indicators. Okay. So they're really, really, really important. Don't get me wrong. If you want to drive you know, bottom of funnel conversion, you've got to have a very strong top of funnel lead stream coming in there. And that requires consideration, knowledge, you know, awareness, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, when I'm talking to my C-suite colleagues, yeah. you know, that's, there's no point talking about that. They'll think, you know, they'll just give me my coloring pencils and balloons and say, go, you know, uh, that's up, you know, th- those, you know, setting... Setting those the the softer KPIs yeah. are what I do with my department, <clears throat> with my agencies to say okay. you do this to achieve that, and and that's and that's how it works. Yeah, and that makes sense. That makes sense. And and yeah, like you said, the top of the funnel idea is, is really important because you presumably are going to get much better results at the bottom of the funnel if you are getting better brand recognition and things like that. Yeah, if absolutely. your brand's worth nothing, you're not going to get many sales at the end of the day. Quite right. Quite so um, what's quite interesting, Ben, with your history is you said that you had 10 years on the agency side. And that's great insight for the audience that we have here, but also just for people in general. So first of all, from a client side, what did you use agencies for generally? What was your main function for bringing an agency to support you? So I, I've always been fairly judicious, actually, with how I use agencies. So, so, and I think this has become increasingly important in today's world. It's probably a big risk to most agency leaders. So, so the way I used agencies, I brought agencies in to do things that I couldn't do. Yep. Uh, and that's why I brought them in. I, di- I didn't bring them in for anything else. So uh, I couldn't do creative. That, that, yeah. that's, we didn't do that. And um, we couldn't do big ideas. Okay. Um, now, can, you know, but can, can I knock out some leaflets? Can I do you know, um, a few social posts? Yeah, I can do most of that in-house. I might need an, uh, a big idea. I might need a creative platform. I use my agency to do that. Yeah. So, and I think that's the way the world is kind of moving. So that, that's how I used, uh, certainly Raw Mail, how, how, how we work with agencies. Uh, at, at Mastercard, it was slightly different, actually. And that was, yeah, bearing in mind, Mastercard, big global company, big global agency relationships. It was there, it was a very low headcount organization when I worked there. It's, it's changed a bit now. And we outsourced everything to agencies. Okay. So, so what, was your, what was your department consisting of? Not presumably think- less doers and more thinkers or? So Sean and I ran about fifty million pounds worth of advertising between us. Everything else was <laughs> really. Yep. So we had a big team at McCann and across the McCann network, and they did everything. Interesting. And I'll be honest how with was, you, how was that? Largely brilliant. Okay. I mean, there were times though when you can't get a big agency to do small things. It's quite hard. And at the time, you know, you certainly couldn't get them to build a website or do anything digital. I mean, I'm going back here to 2005, right? I'm going back a long, long way. Right, okay. But it was terrific. But, but what it did mean is I spent all of my time at the agency and all of my time out. Apartment, really. Yeah, and all yeah. of my time out on shoots, which was lovely. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. It was great fun. But it didn't really 
for me personally, you know, I've just spent 10 years in agencies. Uh, actually, it was a good transitional role for me, actually, to move across the client side. But it didn't give me the kind of leadership experience I wanted to have um, and, and, and all the rest of it that I wanted to do. But it was a, it was a very interesting model. And, and you know, I, I think in many ways, there's a lot of advertisers who really ought to think about outsourcing properly and reducing their departments fairly significantly. But it'll, only, it'll, only work in certain, it'll only work in certain markets. You know, there was no below the line at MasterCard. It was all above the line. It was all you know, TV and okay. sponsorship and activation and PR. It wasn't, there was no nitty-gritty, you know, data-driven, yeah. personalised yeah. communications. So do you think that's a conversation that's happening a lot right now? Because like you said, sort of optimization, sort of set cutbacks and things like that, probably that's happening right now. If we're honest, in a post-COVID world or, or a during-COVID world, it may be the case that marketing departments are scaling back. So do you think there's conversations happening in big companies around the UK and beyond? Uh, uh, about- yeah, I, th- I, think, I think it'll happen at both ends of the spectrum, though. So I think you'll get organisations who will say, we're not spending all this money on third parties. Um, sure. I want to put all of this in-house, it'd be cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be honest, I've not built in-house studios or on-site studios. And, you know, I've saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds by doing that. Okay. So, yeah, for, for certain types of work, it's absolutely the right thing to do. If it's kind of quite low, low detail, low creative, but there's quite a high volume of it, then yeah. you'd be better off getting some freelancers and doing it in house, to be honest. Yeah. If you're not a particularly large advertiser. But so I think the threat, there's a big threat of a lot of a certain type of business pulling everything in, which I think is short term, if I'm honest with you, because I think they'll really struggle creatively to retain, to get and retain talent. And I think their creative quality will go down. But it's absolutely a threat. On the other end, I think you will have some larger advertisers who go, do you know what? Actually, you know, we, we need to we need to lean on our partners a bit more, yeah. reduce our our kind of uh, our operational expenditure uh, in house, our people yeah. our people costs, um, and have a more variable yeah, increase our variable costs. So reduce our fixed costs and increase yeah. our variable costs, so we can lean on agencies more. I think agencies for agencies it is tough though in today's world, you know, because in my in my experience. The kind of revenue models that agencies use, you know, are, you know, they're not as secure as they were maybe 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, you, you find yourselves in quite difficult conversations sometimes with agencies saying, you know, you have to pay for this person's salary. I'm kind of going, well, I'm only paying 40% of his time. But I, I don't really want to feel that I need to be responsible for his entire employment. I think, and I think yeah, that's, that, that is an issue, much more of an issue now than it was maybe, you know, a decade or two ago. Yeah, so this is so this is interesting. So in terms of the challenges that you find, or the things you didn't like about working with agencies, was it was it mainly around costs and and sort of inflated budgets and maybe services you didn't need, or were there other things as well? No, I, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think on the creative side, you always have that kind of tension with with creative agencies, especially on the more kind of strategic ones, the larger ones, around you know kind of not invented here. And even when they come up with the fucking idea in the first place, where they kind of go, well, uh, I don't think it's very good idea now. It's like, yeah, well, I don't need a new campaign. You just did a campaign for me. Uh, you know, I see, sure, yeah, okay. I'm sure it hasn't got wear out yet. You know, so there's always a bit of that, that kind of constant, you know, need to kind yeah. of refresh, which I'm, I'm sure is driven by a constant need to charge fees. So so that, that, that sometimes can be a bit frustrating. Uh, and the kind of, you know, through the line, digital agencies, there's quite a different revenue model where, you you know, it's because it's much more continuous work, put that way, as opposed to kind yeah. of project-based work. You actually find you're kind of, you know, there's quite a lot of overhead, which you're, you're constantly having to pay for and buy. And, and I think that's that's quite tough sometimes. That's quite tough when you kind of, you know, the beginning of a relationship, you kind of see it, you're over service, you get the best people, but by about year three, you know, you're okay. kind of really, you're really down to, you know, 
you know, the cheapest possible resource running your yeah. business as humanly possible. And you, you might get to see the MD or a planning director at some point. That, those are frustrations, I guess. On the, on the media side, I mean, you know, the whole, that there is a massive issue around trust. And it's not with the individuals that you're dealing with. They're usually lovely and they've got loads of integrity and they're trying to do a great job for you. It's just that the whole media trading model has changed. Yeah. And it's changed in a way that a lot of advertisers, certainly ones who are kind of big, you know, gray, gray head like I am, it's just very different now from when we started. Okay. You, know, you, know, you know, media agencies used to buy media for me. Now they sell media to me. And that's very, very different. And that's actually happened a long time ago. It's just that, you know, the monetization of that has really kicked in with digital over the last kind of five to 10 years. And you suddenly... Explain the difference between those two. How's that... Explain that shift and how that affects you as a client. Yeah. So as a client, you know, you you want your... In the past, you you would... Now, maybe this was never true, right? But the mirage was that, that, that your media agency was buying your media for you. Okay. So you would give them money, they would go out and get you the best deal to get the, the highest ratings or the best audience coverage that they could. In reality, and probably for quite some time now, decades now, media agencies, holding groups, buy great big chunks of media through socking great big deals with publishers, mm-hmm. and then they trade that to their customers. Okay. So, And the challenge with that, especially in the digital world, is and it's partly exacerbated by very short CMO tenure, so that people don't hang around, they don't order. I mean, having run marketing at Royal Mail for ten years, um, you know, I've had a long, long, hard look at at the amount of money we spend and how we're spending it, and how the agency is spending it on our behalf, and what margins they're making, uh, and the real commercials behind it. A lot, a lot, lot of marketing directors, CMOs, don't don't need to do that. They come in, they do a job, they move on. But but I think the yeah the, the, the way the digital ecosystem has kind of grown up is there are low, it's very very complex especially with with the kind of the the, the long tail of kind of Martech and you know I think PwC and Isbar came out with a report a bit earlier this year which some we all knew which was about you know only about was it about thirty percent of every only thirty p and every pound you use for digital I think things like that you know are means you're forced to have very commercial conversations with your partners, which isn't necessarily you 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 really want to be focused on how am I going to sell more product you don't really want to be focused on are you ripping me off or not? Can I trust you? Are you doing the best for me as humanly possible i mean I sit on on executive committee at Isbar with you know maybe thirty or forty of the largest advertisers in the u k and, you know, they all worry about that. And it's not about the account director, the managing partner, the MD yeah. of, their, of, of their agency that they're dealing with. It's not, it's not about that. It's about the, the supply chain, the lack of clarity in contracts, the auditability, all of that stuff, which is kind of back in big holding company land. And that's, okay. it, 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 it's a real challenge. Interesting. Okay. And so, and so that obviously sounds like a very modern day problem, especially when it comes to that client agency relationship. And in that context, then, what, what would your advice be to not the big agencies, but sort of medium to small agencies about how to approach clients and how to really start a relationship in a way which isn't considered spamming or anything else like that? All agencies have to have a kind of distinctiveness, right? They, and they need, yeah. to be, you know, they, they need to work out what their, their kind of distinctiveness is. And, and then really, for me, it's just about staying true to it, right? You know, a, you know, a big challenge is you know, how... Uh, and it's particularly true for, for, for kind of medium-sized agencies, is that the founders are quite often, or, or you know, one or two senior people, the creative director or, or whatever, yeah. are, 
are absolutely at the pinnacle of a client relationship. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and, and that's great as long as the client is kind of paying for that time and it's a kind of mutually beneficial, you know, commercial relationship. The difficulty comes when, you know, those people leave or they get drawn on to different things or the client changes, but the agency stays the same and that relationship is broken. And yeah. that, that's actually where stuff gets, gets a bit tricky, to be honest with you, okay. in my experience. But it's about just staying true to, staying true to that pitch promise, right? That's, that's okay. the important thing. And but, having something very unique to offer in the first place. So uh, a unique position. I think you've got to have a flavor. Yeah, you've got to have a flavor, right? You know, and, and that, can, you know, it could be, that can be as simple as the platform, the idea, the whatever it is that you've sold, and just staying true to that. Or it can be the approach that you take, the, the methodology you have of kind of you know, getting to great ideas. Um, I don't think it really matters particularly. I think there's a right or wrong kind of distinctiveness, but, but I think it's about staying true to that. One of the pieces of advice I always give to, to, to kind of campaign managers and marketers who've, who've worked for me is, is kind of know what you're buying. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I have, you know, several times in my career bought things which I wasn't particularly happy with. Oh, yeah. You know, mainly actually kind of treatments and stuff like that. And then I've tried to change it afterwards. Well, have you ever tried to change a director's treatment, you know, a week before a shoot? It's quite difficult. Yeah. Um, stroke, it doesn't happen. And, you know, so I think, I think when you're, you know, if you're, if you're agency side and you've sold an idea and the, the client goes, that's brilliant, but actually we don't want to use that idea. We want to do this over here mm-hmm. because we think you're really lovely people. I think you've got, you've got, there's got to be a question mark in the agency's head to kind of go, well, they're buying us, but they didn't actually like our work. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with you. I, I, we need the money and we want the business and we want the brand on our creds and we want all that stuff. But actually, yeah. I probably need to interrogate this a bit more before we kind of walk down the route with a client who actually doesn't like what we've proposed. Interesting. So, you of, me? Yeah, of course, yeah, a bit of self-awareness about actually our, what's, how good is the service we're offering and is it, how is it being received? Yeah, and, you know, I mean, quite often pitch work never runs, right? I mean, quite often that, that is the case. Yeah. But I just think it's something to be really wary of from, from an agency side as well as from a client side. Awesome. No, that's really clear. I like that. Um, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. I think a lot of agencies right now are a bit concerned and thinking they need to find something, a special magic pill to get in with any client. But actually, I think you're right. A bit of honesty, being very specific and focused on what the problem you're solving is and just being open with approaching people in that way is quite a nice approach. And that's true. And, and I think, um, but, but also, you know, if the pitch for a client starts with the first contact, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're spamming people with emails, you know, it's never going to happen, yeah. right? It's, it's just yeah. never going to happen. You might, well, you might be lucky, but it's all about the customer experience right the way through that entire journey, all those interactions as you run up. You know, I, I've run tenders where I'm not going to name, name names, but, you know, the agencies have built up such a strong relationship with us before they've even presented work. Yeah, I got it. Series of tissue meetings, strategic discussions, whatever it is. Yeah. And, you know, by the time they came into the actual room to pitch to a great big board of people, they knew everyone around the table. Yeah. They met them two or three times. They had loads of discussions around directions and routes and what works and what doesn't work. They hadn't done much creative work at that point in time, by the way. It was more at a strategic level of what direction are we going in. They thrashed out that the brief that we'd given was, you know, a load of old cack and actually yeah. the real problem was this. But they did all of that. Yeah. They did all of that up front. But what, but what they did was they built a relationship, uh, which made it an awful lot easier to choose them. 
It's interesting what you talk about the uh, with the pitch of to a, a board, uh, like a big room full of people, because I think one of the things that agencies miss a lot of the time is they think they're pitching to one person, when in reality, if they're pitching to you, yes, but you have a hell of a lot of stakeholders you need to convince that this is the right way to go as well. So if that agency can make the pitch applicable to a broader range or the company as a whole, they're much more likely to to be accepted, I guess. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, obviously, you've got to know who, who your customer is, and that there'll be a decision maker in the room. But you're right; uh, you know, it's a B to B sale, right? So that's yeah. yeah there's a decision making unit, and yeah, there'll be a lead person, but you know, he will have people whispering in his ear, whether it's an MD, whether it's a product director, whether it's a, uh, a customer experience person, whether it's procurement. He will have those people there, so it's quite important that you know, if you can, it's to kind of cover those cover those off, or invo- at least involve them in the conversation. Yeah, exactly. involvement in the pitch process before yeah. the actual presentation on the day. No, exactly. um, no one likes surprises, right? But particularly, I, I've been in some terrible pitches where you know I've had you know brilliant tissue meetings, brilliant strategic discussions, and then you know the team come in on the day. It's a different team from the people who pitched who've gone through all those sessions with us. Yeah, okay. And the work they presented has got bears no resemblance at all really? to anything that was that was presented before. I had one of those and, you know, afterwards, you know, I was chatting to someone I knew at the agency and they said, oh, no, no, this, yeah, this, this big wig from, you know, Europe or the States kind of flew in the, the weekend before, decided to like it and completely changed it all. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. and it was an awful, it was just cringy. It was awful. No, okay, Absolutely. I can see that. I think, I think I like the way you put it in that the, the customer experience starts from the first contact. And, and yeah, absolutely. When, when they're prospecting, I think it's so important to remember that don't, Treat every interaction as though it's the first interaction you're having with a new client. And I think if people did that and audited how they're marketing now, they would change everything, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I get approached all the time on, um, on LinkedIn and all the rest of it. And I'll be honest with you, they're never, ever going to make it into being invited into a, a tender. It's not, it's not the right channel to do it. You know, you want to win my business, you're going to have to meet me. Yeah, so you, but that's you, not you, easy though. That's not easy, Ben, just to get... It's, 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 not, it's not easy, but, you know, there are forums, there are events, right. there are all sorts of things that, I, that, that you do. But also with things like LinkedIn, right? I mean, you know, a decent business development manager can kind of go in, they can find people who know me, they yeah. can... Yeah, there's, there, there, are, there are brilliant ways and ways. I mean, the functionality on LinkedIn is extraordinary in terms yeah. of, you know, targeting capability. Yeah. And understanding those kind of people who are two or three depths removed, who can get me an introduction? Who can, who can, who will, who will say a good word so that Ben will pick up the phone when I call him? No, it's true. Um, you know that 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 kind of thing that that shows that you really want my business and you really care. You're not just spamming me along with the marketing directors of every other FTSE 350 business. Exactly. Yeah. I think LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is um, a good tool in outreach for smaller businesses, not, not businesses of the scale of Royal Mail or MasterCard, but only if it's being used to optimize for a conversation, to actually have a chat with someone and then to see in that chat if this is a good fit. And then again, it works if you have that very specific problem that you're solving in mind. But what I see loads of people doing right now is introduction, connection message, and then three-page essay introducing their services like a minute after you accept request. Yeah, uh, which is just I, not the way. I think that's true. And then flip side, I mean, you've got to remember that this, you know, a marketing director or CMO is, is going to have a lot of calls on his time, and particularly actually from other sort of suppliers pitching to him as well. Yeah, of course. So 
I, I actually get more contacts from MarTech vendors and technology suppliers, like SAPs and Oracles and Adobe's in this world, than I ever do from agencies. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, Christ, yeah. All the time. <clears throat> All the time. Because it's big, heavy investment, right? I mean, these yeah. are, you know, and once you're tied into a piece of technology, I mean, you know, trying to unplug yeah. it's a nightmare. <laughs> True. It's just a nightmare. And they have a very interesting approach to, to tendering, right, to pitching. It's, it's really, really interesting, or at least the building a relationship, because ultimately yeah. the, in a large corp like mine, or like Normal or, or MasterCard, the, the actual technology decision, I will be in that decision-making unit, but there'll be a tech person who is probably in technology procurement that are probably going to be actually doing the buying. But, you know, what they do is they, they basically somehow get you onto a call by some form of bribery or whatever, research report or whatever it is, and then, and then that kind of goes out the window and they just basically do a diagnostic on you. What are your challenges? Okay. You know, it's a very consultative approach that they yeah. then take. Uh, and then, yeah, and through that, they basically do proper business development. They kind of go, well, you know, you know when we did work with so-and-so client, we did X, Y, and Z, would you like to see a use case on that? And suddenly you're sucked into a conversation. Yeah. It's actually really quite hard to get out of. You have to be quite assertive. And of course, uh, if they can deliver, then it's worthwhile. Yeah. 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 No, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, okay, Ben, this is, this is really awesome. I've, I've learned a lot, actually, and it's great to see the perspective from definitely big group like uh, Royal Mail. I just want to finish with a question which um, I'm asking everyone, and that is that from your perspective in 2020, what is the main challenge that marketing is facing now, and, and how do you think we can, we can solve that? So I thought about this a lot, actually. I mean, partly because, you know, I've been made redundant. I've got a bit of time on my hands. And, and you know, everyone tells me that I have to stop and reflect. So I am stopping and reflecting. <laughs> There's a real bias to action amongst marketeers, right? You just want to get out and do stuff. You want to apply sure. for jobs, apply for jobs, apply for jobs. There aren't any jobs. And actually, I don't even know if I want to do them anyway. I genuinely think one of the biggest challenges is this, these are not normal times, right? And, and they're not going to be normal times for a very long time. I think there are very few businesses who aren't going to have to do anything differently. I think the vast majority of businesses are absolutely going to have to do things differently. I've been working, I said I have bias to action. I've been doing a little bit of pro bono work with a a local charity, just by way of example. Mm -hmm. And they can't fundraise. Now, I'm not a charity marketer. I've never done charity marketing. I haven't got a clue about how it works. But I've sat down with with their their team and, uh, and they're running out of money pretty quick. They do very vital work. But all the way that they raise money involves physical interaction. Yeah. Charity golf days, whatever it is. Yeah. A small amount of people giving quite a lot of money Got it. once or twice a year. I mean, they are, you know, if they don't change their model, they're at, they've absolutely had it. And, and I just think it's a very good example because that, they basically need to change everything. If they want to survive, they, they really, they, they need to look at their value proposition and they need to go, how is that relevant today? What do I need to change, you know, within our kind of, I'm going to call it a revenue model, but yeah, the way we collect money yeah. to raise funds, to compete in a big recessionary environment, mm-hmm. completely online. You know, even the outreach we do has got to be online, um, let alone the fundraising. Yeah. And, you know, all the funding is drying up from other sources because unless it's COVID-related, there, there isn't any funding. And then True. every single charity in the world is going for COVID-related funding at the moment. So, that, so that's all drying up. So, it's, you know, so, so your, your value props got to change. You've probably got to change your revenue model altogether from kind of large donations from a few people to lots of small donations, regular giving, all the rest of it. Really, really, really difficult stuff to do. You're going to have to 
massively augment your online presence, your social presence, using platforms differently. Yeah. And of course, you're going to have to have real impact and distinctiveness in the activities that you do do. So I, I use that as an example. Uh, so I, I think, I think you know, throughout my career, there's always been kind of, you know, 2020 vision documents and statements with, you know, kind of middle-aged men with binoculars looking into the distance, you know, uh, and, you know, this is what it's going to be like. But I genuinely think that most businesses, most marketeers, most agencies need to sit down and go, well, what is our 2020 vision, right? We're in 2020 now, and it is the world is, is, is broken, and the way that everything works is broken. We're going to have to expand our channels. We're going to have to do – there is so much change happening. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think the, big, the biggest challenge is the strategic one, which is, you know, how are we going to operate because this isn't going to go away. Yeah. Um, or if it is going to go away, it's going to be quite small and we're going to come out of it different. So I think that, that, that is actually the, big, the biggest challenge. It's a huge opportunity, though, right? I mean, agencies should be, you know, yeah. rubbing their hands with joy, right? Because this is a time of massive disruption and massive change, yeah. which is a great opportunity for creativity, creative solutions, problem-solving, high-impact work. You know, it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity, actually. But I think that is the bigger challenge, is getting people to step back and go, actually, do you know what? I can't just change 10%. If I really want to thrive for the next five, 10 years, we're going to have to really shift this stuff now. We're going to have to really change the way we're working. Love it. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the, the, the combination of the challenge and the opportunity. I, I see that all the time. And I think the bravest people out there who aren't panicking right now and are really trying to observe and see what the opportunity is are the ones who are going to come out of this on top, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I hate the word, but it is all about agility, right? And, and that's mm-hmm. not just about moving fast. It, it is about learning by doing, right? right? It's, it, yeah. it's, it's not about big strategic pieces. Yes, you need to think about stuff, but that, honestly, it doesn't take that long. It's then putting out, you know, lighting, you know, 20 small fires and seeing which ones actually survive and then just kind of running after that and fanning those flames. It's, you know, rather than placing one or maybe two big bets. Yeah. And, I, and I really do think that the, the companies that, that will, will survive and then hopefully thrive and grow will be the ones who, who are able to do that. They've got the culture to be able to do that. They've got the right partners and supply chain to be able to do that. And that's yeah. where you know, the agency community you know, should come in very strongly. Cool. Ben, thank you so much. It's been really great having you on. And I'm really excited to see what the next chapter is for you. So hopefully when you set your direction and things like that in a few months, we can have you back on. You can give us an update. Love to. Brilliant. Take care, Ben. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to Reality Check. For more info on me, our show, or our guests, or just to find out how you can come on the show, just drop me a DM on Instagram and I'll get back to you. In the meantime, keep up the good work.